mean, it's a real privilege to get to speak after Easter, right? Because it's kind of all been laid out there. I mean, the story of uh, Jesus' suffering, his betrayal, his death, and then his resurrection. It's, it's a, the whole story of the gospel is laid out there. And, and so we, we, I have this um, kind of wonderful position of just kind of being able to look back and ask the question this, this morning as we come to the end of the series, uh, how do we respond? How do we respond to Easter? How do we respond to these momentous kind of explosive statements of Jesus uh, that he's made throughout the Gospel of John? Now, John himself gives us the answer of how he wants to respond at the very end uh, of his book. Uh, you can turn with me here to John. Uh, John 21 or John 20, right in verse 30 at the very end of, of, of chapter 20. It says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, what I've written down in the Gospel of John, these are written so that you may believe. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. John's goal, uh, John's goal is clear. His purpose is crystal clear. He wants you to believe in Jesus. But what does it look like to believe in Jesus? Um, what does it look like to respond? And one answer we might give is, well, you worship him. You worship him, you serve him as Lord. Okay, well, great. Well, great. Well, what does that look like? Does that just mean I, I, I come to church? Does that just mean I, I sing a bunch of songs? I mean, what, what does it mean to worship uh, God? Does worship um, just mean what we do on Sunday morning as we gather together? Well, no, in the Bible, worship is, is both gathered and scattered. It's something that you do here in the congregation on the Lord's Day, but it's also something you do in your heart, at home, in your day-to-day life, in your work, in the way you live, in the way you eat, in the way you play, in the way you rest. Um, the, the word worship comes from uh, the Old English, which, which is really worth-ship. To, to, to ascribe worth or value to something. So you might say worship is just uh, seeing Jesus as valuable, seeing him as worthy. And what, what I might say, maybe a definition that could work for us this morning, worship is loving Jesus out loud. It's, it's just loving Jesus out loud, enjoying Jesus, delighting in Jesus, being satisfied in Jesus. Uh, either in public or in private, but just doing it in such a way that it has this reverberating effect beyond just yourself. When you really love something, it's contagious. Other people can't help but notice. Uh, This is how I came to love classical music. I didn't always like classical music, really liked kind of rock and roll music. I liked all kinds of different things. But when I was in college, I took a classical music class. And I was sitting in this classroom, and I I had um, this amazing professor that she she was like a cartoon character but she was uh this wonderful older german woman and she would walk in and she was always wearing like capes and cloaks and scarves and things so she would just kind of like float and like kind of blow into the room and she would be you know carrying stacks of books and like cds and things like that and you never wanted to come to class late because you didn't want to miss the show at the beginning of class, because this is what would happen. We, she'd talk about what we were going to learn that day, and then we'd listen. And, and so what would happen, and the classroom was uh, smaller than this room, but it was built like an amphitheater, and it was really built 
to play music. And the whole room was like one big stereo system. And it had like this massive cabinet on the wall. And she would open up the cabinet and it had like all these amplifiers. And like one of those, you know, those old stereo systems that have like the big round volume knobs. So she'd put the CD in and then she'd crank the volume knob over like that, like some mad scientist. And the music would start. And it would just blow your hair back because it was so loud. I don't know if she was deaf or she just loved it, but it was like headbangingly louder than any concert I've ever been to. It was like sitting in the front row with like a hundred violins, a hundred horns, a hundred drums, and it's just blowing your hair back listening to it. And I think that's one of the secrets is to like classical music. You really just have to listen to it super ridiculously loud. But we would listen to it, and this was my favorite part. At the very end of whatever piece we were listening to, she would kind of, you know, roll the volume knob back again. And she'd fade it out. Not She wouldn't just, you know, turn it off. She'd fade it out ever slowly. And the room would be dead silent. You could hear a pin drop. And she would take a breath and kind of compose herself because she was pretty wigged out on the music. <laughs> So she'd kind of compose herself. I'd be like, do you need a minute? And she'd compose herself, and then she'd go, all right, let's begin. And we were ready to hear about whatever, whatever she just heard in that, we wanted to hear it. Because when you love something, it helps other people love it too. Uh, uh, author Don Miller talks about it like this. He had a similar experience with jazz music. He said, I never really liked jazz music because it, it seems like it never ends. <laughs> but then uh, this is what he says. He said, one time I was standing outside the Baghdad Theater in Portland. And I saw a man play the saxophone. And I watched him for 15 minutes straight and he never once opened his eyes. After that, I liked jazz music. It's incredible, isn't it? He said, this is what he says. Sometimes you have to watch somebody love something before you can love it yourself. It's as if they're showing you the way. And so what I want us to do this morning is to watch what it looks like for somebody to love Jesus. For someone to respond to him, for something, someone to enjoy him and delight in him. And we're going to turn the volume up on it as much as we can. And I hope that uh, we, we can catch a little of what we see in this passage. Uh, uh, this is a famous uh, passage. It's recounted in a, a couple of the Gospels. It's in Matthew. Uh, it's in Mark. It's kind of ordered in a little bit of a different way. And, and, and the characters are unnamed in those accounts. But in this one, uh, we, we know who it is. Jesus is with Mary and Martha and, and Lazarus. And they're sitting together. So let's just kind of look in on this uh, unusual dinner party. And I, I want us to look uh, for just a couple things as we follow uh, the line of the story. Once I just, just want us to see and kind of grab for ourselves a picture of what it looks like to really delight in Jesus. To be satisfied in him, to glory in him, to worship him. What does it mean to delight in Jesus? What keeps us from delighting in Jesus? And then how can we change? So first, let's just look at uh, this story starting in uh, chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus is coming back 
through the town of Bethany. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And we know uh, from the kind of the arc of the story that he's walking towards the cross. You know, the, the religious leaders have decided that they, they can't they can't take it anymore. They're going to put Jesus to death. So every day is one day closer to Jesus's death. And you kind of get this ominous shadow over the entire the, the entire last couple chapters uh, of John. And then um, he's walking through and his friends invite him over for a dinner party. Now, other gospel writers tell us that this party is at the house of Simon the leper, who I'm presuming is Simon the, uh, the ex-leper, because otherwise he wouldn't really eat with them. So it's at the house of Simon the leper, and the party is being hosted, we know, by Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Lazarus, uh, raised from the dead. Martha and Mary, you remember Martha and Mary? Jesus is over at the house, and he's uh, teaching. And Martha, what is she busy doing? She's serving. She's preparing. She's getting everything ready. And uh, what does she do? She, she very famously complains to Jesus that her sister's not helping her. Her sister is just sitting at Jesus' feet, just taking it all in. And she's no help to Martha. So Martha's frustrated, and she complains to Jesus. And Jesus says to Martha, 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 Martha. <laughs> Martha, Mary's chosen what is better, and it will never be taken away from her. So Martha, it's great to serve, but just don't be so hard on your sister Mary. <laughs> and so the same family now is um, uh, there, and they're giving basically a thank you dinner in Jesus' honor. Thank you, why? Because obviously uh, Lazarus isn't dead anymore. So it's kind of a big occasion, and the next chance they get, they, they throw this party uh, for Jesus. So the party's hosted by an ex-leper, an ex-dead guy. And his two sisters. Now, so what should we notice about this party just besides the guest list? Number one, I think, look, the focus of everyone is on Jesus. Jesus is the guest of honor, right? So you would imagine uh, that Martha, being the planner that she is, she's, she's preparing exactly the food that Jesus likes. She's serving uh, just uh, the bottle of wine that Jesus most enjoys. Uh, they're telling all the stories about what Jesus has done. And if you look at, as he describes the scene, everyone's around Jesus. Martha's serving Jesus. Mary's uh, very kind of closely attending to Jesus. And Lazarus, is, he's just hanging out talking to Jesus. <laughs> but everyone's focus is on the person of Jesus Christ. He's the guest of honor. There's no doubt about who the star of the show is. It's Jesus Christ. And the next thing I think we ought to notice is, is everyone's freedom to just be themselves at the party. Right, there's this total lack of formality. There's this total kind of unself-consciousness, right? So, so Jesus and Lazarus are engaged in a conversation. And, you know, Martha is being Martha, right? She's serving. She, she's, she's taking care of business, right? She, she's attending to things. But what we notice... That's a lot different uh, from when we see Martha earlier is that she's not complaining about anything. She's delighting to serve Jesus. She's delighting to play her part. Notice Martha didn't become Mary. She's still Martha. But somehow her activity, her service, her hard work, her planning, all of that, it's, it's been redeemed, right? So there's a kind of graciousness to it. 
So she's attending to Jesus. And of course, well, Mary's just being Mary. <laughs> she's where we always think of her. She's right at Jesus' feet. Wanted to hear every single word that he says. And, and notice Martha's still Martha. But she's not bugging her sister anymore. She's not being quite so inconsiderate. We think probably she's, uh, she's helped set the table and she's done what she needs to do. And then she can go have her, you know, Jesus feet time. Um, and I think it's beautiful that, that we see here there's not just one way to serve Jesus in this passage. There's this huge diversity of the way people are, are kind of focusing on him and attending to him and worshiping him. Uh, but really, the focus of the text is on Mary's act of devotion here, because that's really, I mean, that's, it's pretty spectacular, so let's focus on that. What does Mary do? While Jesus is in conversation with his friend Lazarus, she, she, she goes into her room, and she grabs a gift for Jesus. And she thinks, I, maybe I won't be able to see him again. I mean, he's said something that I think maybe other people haven't quite caught on, that he's going away, that seems like he says he's going to die. This might be my last chance to say thank you. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to grab this jar of perfume, this, this alabaster jar of perfume, really expensive perfume, right? And I'm going to take it and <clears throat> I'm just going to give it to Jesus. Now, the, the, the writer tells us that it's a pound of perfume, but really that's kind of like a Roman pound, uh, you know, which is kind of like a baker's dozen. You know, it's like not quite a dozen. And so a Roman pound was really about 12 ounces. So it was like three quarters of a pound, which is still a lot of ointment. Now, uh, the other day, uh, my son and some of his friends from the neighborhood were over at the house. And I, these kids walked in and this uh, one of our neighbors walked in. And I was like, whoa. Did somebody uh, put on some uh, cologne or something? And this, and this kid looked up at me and he was like, my grandfather gave me this old spice. <laughs> and uh, I spilled some of it. <laughs> and then he just reeked of old spice. So he walks in the room and it was like he poured it head to toe all over. But he was kind of smiling like, I know I smell good, right? And I was like, dude, you do smell good. So this was that. It was kind of like an obscene amount of perfume. And so she brings it over to Jesus and she pours it on his head <laughs> and it goes all the way down to his feet. <laughs> now, this might seem kind of like a prank, like something you do to the coach at the end of the Super Bowl. You know, you just dump the gator on his head. But this it wasn't like that. This is this is a deeply significant act in the Bible. When someone gets anointed with oil, it means they're, they're a really special, significant person. The categories of people that got anointed were kings were prophets, were priests. These were people that were set apart and devoted to God. These were people who were regarded as special, as holy. And so this isn't, you know, just a commonplace uh, kind of horsing around. This is, this is an act of intense devotion to Jesus. This is saying, you're the king. You're my great high priest. You're the prophet come down from God. I see who you are. I know who you are. And, I, and I'm telling everyone who I think you are. I, I, I just, I, I love that. This act was deeply significant. And, and when you think about it, it was costly too. Because the price we find out later was about 300 denarii, denarii. And that's about a year's wages, which means like, so think about it in today's uh, terms, like you, with about a year's salary, you can buy a really nice car, 
So imagine like a really, like taking whatever the price of a really nice car is and just putting that all, like buying something really significant with that and then just giving it to someone as a gift. That was a big deal. That was a huge deal. And her act is, it's not just costly, it's, it's decisive, right? Because to break open this, this uh, cask of perfume, it was kind of a one-time thing only. Uh, you couldn't just screw the cap on and put it back in. You couldn't just use a little bit. You had to waste it, essentially, to, to just break it and pour all of it out. So she goes, this is the time I've been waiting for. And she breaks it open, and she uses it all on Jesus. There's no holding anything back. It's this lavish, extravagant uh, display of love and worship and hospitality. And it's so much that his whole body is covered. (laughs) The other uh, gospel writers describe her as starting with his head, which is appropriate because that's you anoint a king's head. But John chooses to highlight her humility (laughs) and maybe even echoing uh, Jesus washing the disciples feet a little bit later. By showing that, that the perfume even ran down to his feet. So she's wiping him off with the perfume. It's, it's amazing. And her act also shows her devotion to Jesus. And this bears a little bit of explaining. You see, um, in that culture, uh, for someone to have, for a single woman to have a really expensive, precious item like this, means that it was probably part of her dowry which is probably part of the thing, really. It was kind of like her net worth as a person. One of the things that made her valuable. One of the things that um, enabled her to kind of get ahead in life and hope for future success and marriage and family and children, which in that culture, we think that's important today. I mean, to have a family, to find a husband, to have kids, that, that was your whole life. That, that all of your worth was wrapped up in that. And so she took something that was really kind of like her safety net. She took something that was really um, the thing that made her worthwhile in the eyes of the world. The thing that gave her value in the eyes of other people. And she broke it and she poured it out on Jesus. And she said, I don't care, you're more valuable. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that amazing? This is a deeply significant act. It's a deeply cautious act. You you think of um, Mary taking this thing that's the most precious to her, taking her future, taking her hope, and pouring it out on Jesus. And you think of uh, God calling Abraham up to the mountain to sacrifice his son, his only son, his most precious child, the source of all future blessing. And God said, go, go put that to death. Go take that and give it to me. That's what Mary's doing. And so uh, I wonder for us, just why would somebody do that? <laughs> why would Mary do that? Why would Mary take the thing that she looked at and said, as long as I have this in my possession, I know I'll be okay. Why would she take that off of her shelf and pour it out on Jesus? Why would somebody do that? Out of gratitude. I mean, it's got to be for gratitude because she looks back and and she sees what had happened in her life. She looked back and she saw Lazarus, her brother, who was dead. And she was devastated. Y'all remember? 
I mean, she was an absolute wreck. It was by far the, the darkest time of her life. And in an instant, God turned it upside down. And so she looks back and she goes, how can I thank you? What can I get? What do you give to the person who already has everything? Right? Have you ever had that problem? You're trying to get someone a gift and you're like, I mean, you kind of already got everything. What do, what, what do I give to them? Um, maybe I just have fancier friends, you know. And I'm like, oh, you already have a lot of stuff. But, um, but literally, God already has everything. Everything is his. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. So what do you do? What do you give him? And she's saying, well, I'll give him what's most precious to me. And here's the beautiful thing. Jesus, who has everything, is blessed by her devotion to him. The picture we have in the Gospels of Jesus isn't someone who's just, you know, snapping his fingers and food's coming whenever he wants it. That, you know, if he wants sleep, he just closes his eyes for 30 minutes and it's like he had eight hours. I mean, it's like this is a guy who's in tremendous need. The picture we have in the gospel is someone who has um, chosen to take on a human nature that gets hungry, that's get, that gets sick, that gets lonely. And who is actually able to be served by human hands. That's incredible. And so when you come to Jesus, when she's coming to Jesus here, she's, she's coming to, to him and she's going, how can I bless him? What can I do that will delight him? And so she pours this out. And in the other accounts, Jesus actually says, she's done a beautiful thing for me. This is beautiful. I love this. I'm delighting that she's delighting in me. It warms Jesus' heart. <laughs> so I, I, I wonder uh, for you, what about you? What, what, what's your most valuable possession? What do, you, what do you look on yourself and you say, as long as I've got this, I know I'm okay. Maybe it's not a, a, an object. Maybe it's a desire. You go, as long as I can gratify this, then I'm okay. Maybe it's a relationship. As long as I still have this person, I know I'll be okay. What do you need to be okay? And then look at Mary. She's saying, the only thing I need to be okay is you. That's incredible. That's inspiring. I mean, that, that's an act of, of true uh, devotion to Jesus. But if we're honest with ourselves, I, I, we don't really live that way, do we? When we come to God, um, <laughs> we aspire to have that kind of devotion to him. But most of the time, uh, we're half-hearted. Me, I'm quarter-hearted most of the time, right? So um, eighth-hearted, probably, because you have all these competing desires in your heart. And so you come to God and you go, I know you deserve everything, but can't I just keep a little something for myself? And that's the picture that we have here with um, another guest at the party, Judas. You see, as this worship service is going on, oh, we see this incredible picture of, of what happens in our own heart when we actually fail to delight in God, in, in, in this little picture of Judas. You see, because as this one worship session is happening, everyone's focused around Jesus' worship. Uh, Judas is having his own little worship service. But who's he worshiping? Judas. <laughs> and so he's there, and, and um, Judas Iscariot is one of Jesus' disciples. Uh, he's the one who we know ends up betraying Jesus. Uh, he's the traitor. 
And the picture that we get in uh, John's gospel is that Judas is always kind of connected to money in somehow in some way. Judas was the guy who was in charge of the money bag, which Jesus, who had no place to lay his head, didn't really have any use for uh, money. And but people would give him things all the time. His disciples would give him something. And, and so what would often happen is they would collect uh, the alms and the gifts and stuff in this money bag. And then they would distribute those things to needy people as they as they went around. And Judas was the one who was in charge of distributing all the gifts uh, to the needy. Uh, however, John also tells us that Judas had a secret practice of kind of taking a little um, handling fee for himself out of the money. So Judas would say, you know, uh, two for the poor, one for me. And so that, that was Judas. <laughs> so when Mary walks up with the perfume... You know, he's already, I'm sure, looking. Judas is the kind of guy where I think everything has a price tag. You know, so he looks and he goes, how much money did they spend on this food? They could have given that to the poor, you know. I mean, what a, this is a little extravagant, don't you think? And then, you know, Mary comes out with the perfume and he goes, ooh, I wonder if she's going to give that to us. That's a really good gift. I wonder what I could sell that for. And you can see he's already kind of calculating it in his mind. I could, that's like a year's wait. That's like 300 denarii. I can, what could I get with that? What could that do for me? And so Judas is looking at it. And then when she breaks, when she breaks the jar and she starts pouring it on Jesus's head, it's like, that's the final straw. It's all over. And so Judas uh, complains. Um, When she breaks it open, he interrupts the party and he says, "Uh, excuse me, uh, why wasn't that ointment uh, sold and given to the poor? This is uh, verse five. In in Matthew's account in Matthew 26, Judas says, why why this waste? What a waste of good perfume. What a waste of money. And do you you hear from, from what he says, what he thinks of Jesus? It's waste. This guy doesn't appreciate it. This guy doesn't even like nice clothes. This guy doesn't even like, like nice things. What's he going to do with all this? What are you wasting on him for? Judas is suspicious, both of the way people are worshiping Jesus and he's suspicious of Jesus himself. Let, let, let me explain. Judas is entering into this, to the presence of God, and he's suspicious of the way other people are approaching God. Uh, Judas is so used to thinking about meeting his own needs when he comes into the, the worship of God, when he comes into a place where people are, are glorifying God or are, are, are praising him or are serving him. Judas is thinking about his own needs. Now, I think that still happens today. I know sometimes it's a temptation for me. When you get into the worship of God, when you get into the public service of worship of God, you can start to become suspicious of the way other people are singing, the way other people are dressing, the way other people are praying, the way other people are dealing with their kids. And so Judas was one of those guys who, who would kind of whisper after the worship service. I'd say, did you see that person? Did you see how they were dressed? Did you see how they spoke? Judas was suspicious of other people when they approach God. And, and I just wonder f- for us, 
Christ Community Church, just to set aside for a second. How much does this resonate with us? Because a lot of us, we, we come here because we, we believe that there's a certain way, that there's a, a better way to worship God, right? According to his word, which I think is true. But does our belief in a good way, in the best way to worship God, does that lead us to be suspicious of other people, of the way they approach God? I'm just asking. And that's something I've had to deal with in my own heart, especially as someone who's involved with music. Because I go, would I play it that way? Would I say it that way? Uh, my friend um, loves to quote, uh, he, he, he um, is involved in an Episcopal church where people are really into doing things uh, in this kind of traditional style. And he read a book by a guy named Harold Best who writes about worship. And Harold Best said this. He said, mature Christians are easily edified. Meaning mature Christians walk in and they're not trying to find something. They're not trying to find fault with something someone's doing. They're trying to find what's good and take it and be edified and be blessed. Judas wasn't easily edified. (laughs) He needed things to be just a certain way for himself. Beware of that when you come into the presence of God. But Judas wasn't just suspicious of other people. He's suspicious of God. Because think about this. Why do we ever sin? Why would Judas ever lie to the rest of the disciples? Why would he ever hide what he's doing from Jesus? Except that he doesn't think Jesus really cares about what Judas needs. Judas looks at the money. And he says, I know we're supposed to give this to the poor, but I got these bills or I got this stuff that I want. I've got needs and Jesus doesn't understand them. So what I have to do is I have to take a little something for myself to meet my needs. Because I can't bring my needs before God and let him meet them in his own way, in his own time, because he doesn't really care about me. Not how I care about me. Do you see, from the very beginning of the Bible, all sin is built on a suspicion of God. Eve and the serpent. God's put them in in this, this garden full of everything good, everything delightful. And the serpent says to Eve, did God really say that? Be a little suspicious of what God tells you. Because I don't think he's really looking out for your best interests, Eve. And I think what you need to do is you need to take charge. And you need to take a little something for yourself. Because you can't trust God to take care of you. you got to take care of you. And whatever your struggle is, that kind of ingratitude, that kind of suspicion, is at the root of absolutely every kind of sin. Because the lie at the bottom is God doesn't really care about me. So I need to take care of it myself. And so instead of coming to Jesus as a person in need, as a person with needs, and, and, and laying down before Jesus and saying, I'm a mess of needs. <laughs> Help me. He says, I, I got to take something for myself. He's not just suspicious of others. He's suspicious of God. God isn't really looking out for me. So why is Judas following Jesus at all? That's the question that I want to ask. Why is he even there? If he obviously doesn't care about him, 
I mean, he can get a little bit of money, right? But he's kind of stealing it. And uh, couldn't he just get a normal job and make more money than just taking a little off the top for himself? And I think that the answer is Judas is there because he finds Jesus useful. Jonathan Edwards says this, the difference between a nominal Christian, a hypocrite, someone who's just a Christian in name only, the difference between that kind of person and a true Christian is that a nominal Christian finds Jesus useful. Finds him useful to get what their heart really desires. What their heart really finds beautiful and excellent. But a true Christian, a true Christian comes to Jesus Because he finds Jesus beautiful. He finds Jesus excellent. He finds Jesus satisfying in and of himself. So I just thought, oh, I wonder. In this setting, there was a group of uh, of people who were all outwardly following Jesus. They were all there at the party. Some found Jesus beautiful. Some found Jesus useful. What do you find useful about following God. Um, it's tough, right, in, in our current society where there's, there's a lot of benefits. that you, you know, if business connections that you can make at church and, and relationships uh, with friends. And, hey, it feels good. And, hey, I like having my sins forgiven. Hey, I just like singing songs. Um, hey, I just like a warm place to hang out. But do you really see Jesus as bigger and more beautiful? Are you seeking to have your soul satisfied in him alone. And here's a question. What, where do you find yourself like Judas maybe grumbling against God? This is a hard question for a lot of us. Because for some of us, uh, we find ourselves kind of grumbling against God. Suspicious of God because he's withheld blessing. Maybe that's Judas's problem. And, and, and for other uh, of us, we, we find ourselves grumbling because he's allowed pain into our life. And some of us have a lot of pain. And we don't know why God has allowed it in our life except for our good and his glory. Because the Bible said that he does work all things for the good of those whom he has called. For those who he loves. You know, the other week I was, um, or earlier this week, I was at a a funeral. And um, I'm a young person and I, I feel like I've been to a lot of funerals recently. And that um, is, it's hard. And uh, so I was at a funeral for uh, um, a stillborn child of one of our friends. And we're sitting in this service. And uh, the mother of the baby gets up and she reads Romans 8. And she says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those whom he has called, those who he loves. He's working all things for good. God's generous. God's not stingy. God didn't withhold his son. He's not going to withhold any good thing from you. And let me tell you, I don't know how many people in that room were paying attention before, but when she got up there and read that, everybody was paying attention. Because that kind of power, that kind of confidence, that kind of freedom, that's beautiful. That's contagious. And when you see someone who has that kind of satisfaction in God, apart from the most horrible circumstances, you go, 
how can I learn how to do that? And so that's where, where we are, right? We're, we're asking, how can we do that? How can our hearts change from a heart of grumbling to a heart of gratitude? How can our hearts move from suspicion in God to satisfaction in God, despite our circumstances? And I think the answer is, briefly, you have to look through the cross of Christ. You have to look through his sufferings for you at your present circumstances. Not just your present circumstances, at your past and at your future. Because this is, uh, really, when you think about the setting of this passage, everything takes on a new meaning when you consider that he's about to go to the cross. You know, Mary had good reason to be thankful to Jesus, right? Because she, he had resurrected her brother. And she was thankful, right? Because Jesus saved her brother. Jesus spared her all this grief. He's been merciful to her. But think about this. You and I have so much more reason to be grateful to God. We have a mountain of mercy that she had no idea about. Because we know that he didn't just save Lazarus from the grave. He saved us from the grave. And he didn't just come late to a party and, and, and weep at Lazarus's funeral. He came to his own funeral weeping for you and for me. And so the key to gratitude, the key to a change of heart, the key to a life that's devoted to delighting in Jesus and finding him excellent and glorious and satisfying is you have to remember his mercy, that he's merciful to you. He's been merciful to me. And that, that little phrase, that little to me, that makes all the difference. Because if you look through the cross, you see Jesus and you see his suffering and you see how he, Everything he went through was for you. The Bible says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy that was set before Jesus? What was he so excited about that he endured all the suffering of being separated from God, of suffering hell on your and my behalf? What was the joy set before Jesus? Well, the joy that was set before him was having you, knowing you, being in fellowship with you, reuniting you to the Father, all of us being together one as he and the Father are one. You really knowing how much he loves you and receiving that love and reflecting that love out, that's the joy that was set before him. He was looking forward to that day that, that, that we... We sang about that, that heavenly worship service where everyone's praising the name of Jesus. Everyone's circled around him. Everyone's glorifying him. And, and if, if we look not just back, if we look forward through the cross of Christ to the blessings that he has promised to those who delight in him. Well, any loss that we suffer in this life is a light and momentary affliction. Mary, can you just imagine if she had thought next week, next week I'll just give this to Jesus. What worth 
would the perfume be 10,000 years from now? Nothing, right? It's, it's rusted. You've seen them, right? It's like in some museum somewhere. It's a broken jar. That stuff is long gone. What worth was the 30 pieces of silver that Judas took to betray Jesus in 10,000 years? Well, it's a rusty coin. It's in a museum too. What a waste. What a waste. But to, to give everything to him who's given everything for you. What gain? What incredible gain. Whatever your suffering is in this present life, whatever you're dealing with, I would encourage you to think about your pain. Think about your trials. Think about them in the sea of God's love. um, Martin Luther tells this story about um, how a bucket of water makes a pretty big splash if you just throw it on 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 an open floor. But if you take that same bucket of water and you throw it into the sea... You don't notice it at all. In the same way, when we think about the pain that we suffer in this life for the sake of the gospel, when we think about the pain that God has allowed into our life, in and of itself, it seems unbearably big. It seems like a total mess. But when you think about that in the sea of God's mercies, in light of the unceasing riches of his mercy, of his glory, of his goodness to you, his, his, his promise of future blessing. It doesn't really seem like anything at all. That doesn't mean it's not painful, but it does mean that it's going to require work to devote ourselves to delighting in Jesus. And so we're left just, just well, what do we do now? We've seen this, uh, We want to run after it. We want to try to uproot uh, this weed of ingratitude and suspicion in our own heart. Well, what do we do? And I, I just ask, Mary took what she had and gave it to Jesus. What do you have today? What do you have this week? What can you do to take this, the rest of this day? What can you do to take this week? What can you do to, to take what God has placed in your hands this year and use it uh, to glorify Jesus? And I just love this picture, this detail that John gives, that the whole room was filled with the beautiful smell of the perfume. You know, in the same way, if you follow hard after Jesus, if you devote yourself to being satisfied in him, the fragrance will spread over the whole world. And they'll go, what is going on with those people? Who is this God that has loved them so much? That, they've, that they're utterly consumed with being satisfied in him, with worshiping him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father.